This podcast is not legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances. Hi, and welcome to Smarter Lawcast with Hall & Wilcox. My name's Mark Dunphy, and I'm a partner at Hall & Wilcox in the Employment and Workplace Relations team. In this season, we're looking at what you need to do if you want to set up a company in Australia. Today, I'm joined by my colleague and partner, Alison Baker, and my colleague, Special Counsel, Chris Coonasingham, and we're discussing the critical issues of Australia's employment and visa laws. We'll look at how employment relationships are regulated in Australia. We'll look at how our labour costs compare internationally. We'll look post-COVID at what Australia's border restrictions look like, and we'll look at costs and issues involved in obtaining a work visa and perhaps um, some common reasons for visas being refused. Al, I wanted to start with you, if I could, and a common question that I get asked by businesses when they're looking to commence work in Australia and bring employees in from offshore is which employee regulations should they apply? Should a French company bringing in French employees to work in Australia apply the same French standards that have uh, they've been used to in working in their original company, or do they need to comply with Australian employment laws? Oh, hi, Mark, and thanks for having me on today's podcast. Um, thanks for the question. I think, generally speaking, um, Australian employment laws will apply to foreign workers that are, are brought in to work in Australia. The test is really where will be their primary place of work. And if the answer is their primary place of work will be in Australia, then Australian employment laws will apply to their employment. It would only be perhaps if you were bringing someone over for a very short period, like a, um, a business trip or perhaps a short secondment, where it may be the case that Australian employment laws wouldn't apply. But if you're setting somebody up to come over and to do some work here um, on a fairly stable um, approach, then Australian employment laws will be what you need to comply with. Great. Well, that's a great benchmark to work from then. So the second question I have for you is about, at at a high level, what are those Australian employment laws? So how are employment relationships regulated in Australia and what standards uh, apply to employees here? It's it's fairly complex um, because there's lots of different sources and entitlements of rights and obligations that regulate the employment relationship. Um, Australia is set up as a federation, so it's made up of a number of states and territories. And for the most part, laws, employment laws apply federally. So they apply across the country to all employees within Australia or most employees within Australia. There are still some state laws that apply. So things that deal with things like long service leave, workers' compensation, work health and safety and discrimination tend to operate at the state level. Outside of that, though, we have the Fair Work Act. um, And that is really sort of the primary piece of legislation that you look at to determine entitlements. And the Fair Work Act provides minimum conditions for employees known as the National Employment Standards or the NES. And the types of um, entitlements that come from the NES are things like maximum 
uh, weekly hours of work, uh, annual leave, sick leave and carers leave, parental leave, requirements around minimum notice on termination and redundancy pay entitlements and some others, but they're sort of the big ticket items. And then for many employees, the, the sort of an expansion on the NES through industry-based awards and occupational awards that go further and provide additional entitlements. So things like overtime rates, penalty rates, Rates, shift loadings uh, and allowances. And then even in um, many workplaces, there are negotiated enterprise agreements. So the employees come together as a collective, uh, often represented by a union, and they negotiate some workplace specific terms and conditions that go above and beyond the NES. Uh, and then Often and highly advisable, employment relationships are regulated by a written contract of employment and that sets out all the terms and conditions. Um, and really important to have a written contract that makes clear what the notice of termination is so that that's known between the parties and agreed. And also contracts of employment can help protect certain interests of employers. So have strong confidential information clauses, intellectual property um, and restraint clauses as an example. Great. Um, and the last of my introductory questions to you, perhaps, but do things, you mentioned Australia being a federation, do things differ much from state to state or is it universal regulations that, that tend to apply? Uh, for the most part, it's a universal regulation. So, you know, the National Employment Standards by definition, apply nationally. Um, so your, your starting point is what applies at the national level and then are there sort of state specific pieces of legislation that you need to consider? And as I mentioned before, one of those things is like long service leave legislation that differs from state to state. Um, work health and safety, although even if it differs, there's still a fair bit of uniformity from one state to the other. Great, thank you. Well, Chris, over to you, but when a business has decided that it wants to operate in Australia and wants to bring its employees from offshore into Australia, what are, at a high level, what are the basic steps involved that they need to be aware of? Yeah, thank, thanks for that, Mark. And I'll probably just start off by echoing some of Alison's comments earlier about the jurisdiction and the migration laws here. Um, it's it's on a federal level as well, meaning that, say, if you were to bring someone to New South Wales, Victoria, Western Australia, it's similar requirements all throughout. Um, so it doesn't sort of differ from state to state. Then specifically, Mark, to address that question, what exactly is required as part of it? Well, you got to justify to the regulators out here that there is a business case for sending the person here. So if there is an expansion and if there's some research done by the business uh, on the Australian market conditions, that's sort of a reason the regulators out here would consider. And if it's all genuine, they will then approve the visa. It's uh, the process largely involves uh, two sides to the equation. The first is the business uh, being approved to sponsor someone uh, to send them out here. And then it flips then to the individual to see whether they have the experience required for it. And on the individual's perspective, what the regulators are looking at is to make sure they're, they're highly skilled. Um, for example, they're expected to have a minimum number of years of, of work experience between two to five. Uh, and this is just so 
a business case can be made that they are skilled and it's not sort of, um, I would say, cutting out on job opportunities to the Australians, uh, to the Australian workforce. Right. Chris, during the pandemic, which we're working our way out of, it would seem now, Australia was certainly able to take advantage of its geographic isolation and uh, close its borders completely, which had benefits in, with regard to its ability to control or slow down the spread of COVID-19. Mm. Border restrictions have been liberalised uh, more recently and are perhaps approaching normality. But I wanted to ask you what border restrictions look like today. Yep. And a second question, when it comes to an employer applying for a visa to bring an employee in now, what are sort of the rough timeframes involved for that to be processed to allow the employee to get on uh, into sure. a school? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for that. Um, so it, Australia sort of went from probably um, one of the most lockdown countries in the world, Melbourne specifically, I think that's, that's sort of the common known globally, to now being one of the uh, probably most open border restrictions as I know it, I've come across, um, certainly ahead of the rest of Asia. So we're, we've caught up uh, with the rest of the, um, the, the European market, the American market, in the sense that um, as long as you're vaccinated, you'll be able to travel in and not have to undergo quarantine. We even removed the need for PCR or rapid antigen testing before boarding a flight to enter Australia. So it's it's pretty much back to normal uh, as much as possible. So uh, the, 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 the timing consideration from that is when borders were closed for close to two years, a lot of the visas were put on hold and not being processed. And now that it's opened up, we have, again, the, the regulators here now looking through all of those paused applications, and that's now caused a backlog. So, so to answer your second question specifically about timing, we're sort of saying to many of our clients, be prepared to wait up to six months from when the application is submitted to when you'll be able to get the visa to get the person out here. Now, there are certain options we can work around temporary ways of bringing someone out here. There are a few pathways uh, and many of our clients are actually looking at doing that where the wait time is reduced to three weeks. So we sort of bring them all on a short-term basis and then transition them over to a longer-term work basis. So you can sort of do a bit of strategy in that regard, but it's it's something we'll, we'll need to look on uh, on a case-to-case -case basis. So generally six months, but some cases we can get it quicker. Uh, three, three weeks at a start. And you commented on the borders being closed for the best part of two years, which meant there were literally hundreds of thousands of uh, employees who would have normally come here who didn't come here. Yep. The government catering to, uh, to allow that bubble to get in, who weren't able to come here to get in more quickly, or is it just looking at a sort of a normal month-to-month -month or quarterly um, cap on the number of people that they allow in. Yeah, so so that that's a that's a good question because someone says you know I've been waiting for close to two years. Why should my application continue to wait? So the official answer from the government is they're going by queue. So whoever's been waiting longest gets to per, gets their application process first compared with the rest, and so they're working through it. Having said that, they did create a separate list of highly critical occupations, ones where 
industry associations have gone to the government and said, you know, there's just no such work around here. Think your, think about your IT professionals, healthcare professionals who fall under that list. So with with the, with those um, uh, employees, even if they were to submit their application today, their own would be prioritized. Um, against those who've been waiting in the system for two years. And again, it's, it's just a response to the shortage. Um, I also wanted to address then that question you had earlier about the uh, ref common reasons why visas being refused we're seeing these days. So one of them is if there is a change in the business condition. For example, two years ago, the business was highly profitable and today not as much. That is a factor the regulator will look at. So when they relook at these applications two years after, they will ask the question uh, about the business environment and sustainability of, of the position and the business. And if you were to sort of come into a scenario where there is a decline in revenue turnover, that could lead towards a visa being refused. That's, that's, that's something we've got to deal with now. So there is a changing landscape and, and that's, that's part of the excitement, I guess, of it all. It's, it's constantly changing, but um, a change in business environment can lead to a visa being refused. So just because you've been waiting for two years, um, unfortunately, doesn't mean that it's automatically going to get approved at the end of it. Al, back to you. I know that you act for, um, you have acted for many businesses setting up in Australia and offshore entities that have um, uh, a business presence in Australia. At a high level, what observations would you make, if any, of the view of your clients who come from offshore into Australia with their view of comparable labour costs? I think, yeah, talking to clients, probably Australia has fairly high labour costs. Um, uh, yeah, employing people yeah, is at the, the high level, I think, in comparison to internationally. Um, and that's because when we set minimum wages it's done really by looking at cost of living metrics and it's something that's reviewed on an annual basis so we have the fair work commission which is a tribunal that's responsible for many things from a workplace relations perspective but including looking at minimum rates of pay and on an annual basis they look at um, the national minimum wage uh, that applies to anybody who's not covered by an award and they make sure that that's set at a level that ensures ensures people can you know, live appropriately. And then they also look at minimum rates of pay under specific awards, and they determine whether or not there needs to be a percentage increase on a year-by-year -year basis on those awards. And awards have classifications in them, so they might range for example, from level one to level six, and you'll determine what level someone should be at based on their length of service, their skills, their qualifications, um, uh, their seniority within the business, and then that will dictate what will be their minimum rate of pay under the award. And then that base rate under the award is the um, reference point for determining, you know, if they're entitled to overtime pay or allowances or loadings, um, what they should be getting. So um, it can be quite expensive to employ people in Australia. Um, and also important to note that they set wages for permanent staff and then for casual employees, there's also a loading on top of that of about 25% to reflect the fact that casuals don't get entitlements that permanent employees get, such as annual leave and personal um, leave uh, and you know, redundancy pay and larger notice periods on termination.
Al, one of the things that I notice in acting for clients coming into Australia uh, is that they have very, uh, Australia has quite prescriptive laws with regard to termination of employment and pretty uh, significant consequences if employers get those rules um, wrong. So the concept, particularly the North American concept of employment at will particularly isn't something that exists here and that can lead to great frustration um, of um, general counsel and managing directors in entities offshore um, when it comes to wanting to move people on. I wonder in a couple of minutes if you'd be able to summarise perhaps what the laws are, the applicable laws are in Australia with regard to termination of employment and the consequences for getting it wrong. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Um, it's a fairly complicated system. So the starting position is to determine whether or not an employee, if their employment was terminated, would have access to the unfair dismissal jurisdiction. Um, not all employees can access that jurisdiction, but many can. So if you've got an employee who's been with you for at least six months, or if you're a small business, 12 months, but small business is anyone who's got employees less than 15 and you look at a corporate group to determine how many employees you have so most employers are not considered to be small business uh, employers so if you've got an employee with you for at least six months um, and they're covered by an award or an enterprise agreement then they'll be able to bring an unfair dismissal claim if they're not covered by an award or an enterprise agreement then you look at their base salary and if they earn less than a figure that's described as the high income threshold that changes annually then they'll be within the jurisdiction and so if you're dealing with uh, employees who can bring unfair dismissal claims, you need to ensure when you're terminating their employment, you have a valid reason to terminate that's based on their capacity. So whether they're performing or not performing in their role or their conduct. So if they behave inappropriately. Um, and you also need to be fair with how you implement the termination. So we have a system of where you need to give somebody a warning if their employment's in jeopardy, give them an opportunity to improve and then not proceed with termination unless you've given them an opportunity to respond to the reasons that you're going to rely on to justify their termination. Um, there's also quite specific rules if you're terminating someone on the basis of redundancy, um, where you need to meet consultation obligations and you also need to consider redeployment. So whether or not there are other positions that the person could be employed to do within the business if you no longer need their role. Um, and then sort of, for all employees, there's no sort of minimum qualifying requirements or minimum rates of pay. Um, you cannot terminate someone for an unlawful reason. So that might be a discriminatory reason. So you can't terminate someone, for instance, if they're based on their age or their gender or their race, religion, parental responsibilities uh, and, and the like. And similarly, you can't terminate someone because they have a workplace right under a particular workplace law. So for example, it might be the right to take annual leave if you um, you want to terminate someone because they request to take their annual leave um, that would be unlawful uh, also if someone's made a complaint or inquiry about their employment so for instance if someone's complained that they're being bullied by their manager and then you terminate their employment that would be considered for an unlawful reason because they've exercised a workplace right making their complaint um, so there's a number of different pieces of legislation you need to be 
aware of and really a process that you need to adopt in implementing a termination. Uh, also, um, I mentioned earlier on in the podcast, the importance of having a written contract of employment in place and particularly one that specifies how much notice each party needs to give if they're going to end the relationship. Um, if you don't have a written contract of employment in place and your employee is not covered by an award, um, so, you know, for instance, a senior employee, then their employment will be terminable by reasonable notice. And that can often be far greater than what you would agree in a written contract of employment. You know, it can range anywhere between three months to 12 months. And I think we've all experienced where, um, you know, employers want to get rid of really senior people in the organisation and they don't have a written contract of employment, that it can be quite a costly exercise. I think you've just summed up well, Al, while, why I say to employers coming into Australia for the first time that when and if they want to look at terminating the employment of any of their employees, they need to think things through and get an understanding of how local laws operate because there are various levels of complexity that don't exist in uh, many, many um, entities outside of Australia, many countries outside of Australia. Chris, back to you. Um, Al talked a while ago about minimum wage and the concept of a living wage um, in Australia and so employment or labour costs are reasonably high here. Um, what about when it comes to look, employers looking to obtain a visa? What um, award and market rate considerations do the employers need to uh, take into account and what sort of benchmarks do they need to meet in, uh, in setting those wages that they'll offer employees to be able to get those visas? Yeah, sure. So listening to what Al just sort of summarized there, I was I was nodding along and just sort of thinking, yep, whatever she's talking about with regard to an Australian employee, that that also would apply to someone who is on a visa. So Alison, your comments around um, termination policies, uh, performance management, making sure they're being paid uh, casual rates and such, that's that's all applicable to people on visas as well. So and Mark, to answer your question specifically about um, the award rates, well, it's it's going to depend essentially on the type of role someone's expected to perform. Certain roles uh, will attract a higher salary rate, some lower. It, it's it's going to be dependent on the type of uh, role they're going to be performing in Australia. But a, a, a scenario where I commonly face is someone asked is, is someone asking me, you know, if if I've got such and such employee in this country can I send him or her to Australia for that same rate? And, and quite flatly, the answer is no. So again, the rates in Australia are higher. It's a reflection of the cost of living out here. So say someone who is doing a role in, a, in Asia where the rate is probably up to 75% cheaper than Australia is, is what I've come across. Uh, you know, if you want to send them off to Australia, then you've got to pay that 75% difference and pay the Australian rate when they're out here. So. So no workarounds. Uh, the, the visa program, unfortunately, doesn't do a workaround with the market rates. So, and it's obviously done to protect the workforce and make sure that uh, no one's being underpaid and everyone just has an opportunity to be able to survive out here. So, yeah. Right. Um, Al, last question for you. If you could comment on uh, the general enforceability of restraint of trade uh, contractual provisions for employees in Australia and as whether and to whether an offshore employer could expect to be able to enforce those, which often arises with um, 
an international organisation who might send an employee to Australia, that employee might see fertile ground to compete with that employer after a year or two. And we have discussions um, about the enforceability of restraints. So maybe some high level comments about the enforceability of those restraints. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Um, restraint clauses are very commonly included in employment contracts in Australia. Um, certainly, if, if you don't have a restraint clause in the contract, you've got no chance of um, enforcing any sort of restraint. But if you do, then as long as the restraint clause goes no further than is reasonably necessary to protect the employer's business interests, you've got a, a pretty good chance of enforcing it. So when we look at what business interests might need protecting. It's generally things like protecting a business's confidential information and their trade secrets, and also their client and customer relationships. So a restraint clause will typically include a non-compete. So what you were just referring to, you know, trying to stop someone setting up a business in competition um, or non-solicitation clauses. So requirements around preventing soliciting clients or customers to move with the employee or any other staff. So that's particularly relevant if you've got a senior person, you've trusted them to come and set up your business in Australia and they built a team around them. You don't want them to be able to move and take the team with them. That can obviously be quite damaging to the business. So you need to carefully draft your restraint clauses. You need to think about how long you want the restraint to operate. Um, a good description of what sort of services you're trying to prevent the person from being able to compete with you uh, and also details around making sure that any clients or customers or staff that they have business relationships with they're restrained from soliciting them for a period of time. Um, generally speaking a restraint around the six month mark if it's protecting proper interest there's a good chance to enforce anything beyond 12 months and you're probably getting into um, unreasonable territory. Um, important to note in New South Wales, so one state of Australia, there is specific legislation that can assist employers make their restraint clauses more enforceable. But I think the, the lesson with restraint clauses is really tailor it to the employee. Um, so think about it when you're putting it in their employment contract. Um, and yeah, the, the more tailoring you do, the more thought you give it, the better chance you've got of enforcing it. Terrific. Thank you. Look, I think we'll, um, we'll finish up there. Um, thank you uh, for your time and for your insights. Also, I want to thank everybody who has listened to today's episode. I hope you've learned something about how to enter the Australian market uh, and bring your employees to Australia. Really encourage you to get out to Australia if you get the opportunity so you can experience it yourself, so you can experience the, uh, the tremendous distances that are here and also our amazing culture and weather, of course. If you have any questions, please feel free to get in touch with us. You can find the details on our website at hallandwilcox.com.au or you can connect with us on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review and follow our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can subscribe to our website to be notified of new episodes. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.